And as we read from Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is God's word. You may be seated. Matthew chapter 12, if you've been with us for at least a year now, you know that in you know, January to Easter, we're walking through Matthew, and wherever we end at Easter, we just pick up the next January. We're doing the same thing August to Advent with Acts. So we left off in Matthew chapter 12. We're diving back in to Matthew chapter 12, where we see the sign of Jonah. So the context here is basically these Pharisees they have seen Jesus do a whole lot of miraculous things. They've seen him do all these signs and these wonders, but they do not want to believe that he is, in fact, the Messiah who has been prophesied. So they're saying more evidence, more truth, more proof, more signs. And that's, that's the context that we're, we're diving into. And there is a difference between not having enough evidence to be able to make a decision and just ignoring the clear evidence that's in front of you. And so you, some of you are familiar with the, the stages of grief. What is the first stage of grief? Denial. You just, you, 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 before you can accept it, you deny it. And I, I've seen a number, I mean, as a pastor, you see people in grief, but probably the, the hardest thing I've ever had to do in ministry, I think probably the hardest thing I will ever have to do in ministry, is two men about six years ago, and I had to go to a house to tell three children, second to 10th grade, that their parents had tragically died in a plane crash. And not only the children, but some of the parents of the deceased were, were in the room too. And after they heard the news, they all in different ways did the same thing. They, they said in various ways, that can't be true. No, I can't believe that. I was just with them. Some people screamed it, some people whispered it, but it was just an immediate denial of what was so clearly evident is really as phone notifications and text messages and TVs and they were all picking it up but they just they could not believe it and someone may think well Jim that was a really extreme example if we're talking about denying Jesus in this passage that denying that Jesus is who he says he is but I don't think it's that extreme because the claims of Jesus's messiahship would have been at least as disruptive to the Pharisees as losing a loved one. I mean, it was so disruptive, in fact, that they would lie, deceive, and ultimately murder Jesus because of the claims that he was making. So I don't think it's a stretch. There are times that for whatever reason, it doesn't matter how much evidence is in front of us, we do not want to accept it. And that's what we have happening here. So I wanna walk through this passage and I want to see the sign that they asked for I wanna see the sign that they received and then lastly, the sign that they rejected. So first, the sign they asked for. 
We talked about this, I think it was like five or six weeks ago, signs came up and we talked about how signs aren't necessarily like the worst evil thing we could ever do. I mean, there are times in scripture where God does give his people a sign to help them in their faith. So, you, you know, some of the classic examples that come to mind are Gideon, you know, asking for a sign that God's favor was in fact on them or Joshua chapter 10, where that God has the sun stand still to show that he is in fact fighting for Israel. When Abraham, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he gave Abraham a sign to let him know that he will, that God will fulfill this covenant. So, so signs do happen. They're not the worst thing in the world. And, and you add on that, to my knowledge, every prophet that I can think of in the Old Testament, one of two things happened. Either what he was saying happened in fairly short order, or if that wasn't the case, God would give a supernatural sign to affirm the calling and the, the prophecy of this prophet. So we, we have context for Old Testament signs to happen. Ideally, today we would have enough faith to not you know, live always looking for signs, but I just there's this middle category where they just, sometimes God is gracious. So if that's the case, why is Jesus so harsh to these Pharisees for asking a sign? And the answer is because they have seen more signs than all of us collectively will probably ever see in all of our lives. They've seen Jesus. They've seen his healings and his miracles. Some of them saw, some of them heard of Jesus' baptism where God audibly confirmed, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended on him in a way they could see it in the form of a dove. They've had all these signs. They've had more signs than they knew what to do with. So it actually got to the point where the Pharisees, because they couldn't deny the supernatural work of Jesus, the only thing they can do is say he's of the devil. That's all they had left to do because they, they didn't know what to do with this. So the problem, it's not a lack of evidence. The problem is that these Pharisees have hard hearts that do not want to believe that Jesus is who Jesus says that he is. So the question that they're asking, it's really like a non-question. They're not really asking, oh, like kind of like Thomas, I doubt but help my doubting. That's not where they are. They're, if you're a school teacher, you know, sometimes you'll, ha you'll see, you'll have a student raise their hand and they'll ask a question, but it's not really a question. They're not really wanting to know what you have to say. They're not wanting for your advice or input. This is the same kind of non-question. They're wanting to shut it down. They're not wanting to learn and grow. So that's, that's how I see these Pharisees. And I was thinking this week, there's a, there's, a, there's a guy, almost all of you have heard of Tim Keller. He's, um, he's a pastor. He was a pastor in New York City. He planted a church. He's been very influential in a lot of ways. And he's dying of stage four cancer. And so there's a lot of reflecting on his life and ministry. And of course, people, his church planting, his teaching, there's a lot to praise. But what I, what I to me, seems like it's not talked about as much as his own personal evangelism in New York City. I mean, it's crazy how many people came to faith, not through his preaching, but through having a coffee with Tim Keller and him sharing the gospel in New York City. And that's a lot of the reason I think he was so helpful in his teaching is because it was, there was so much real life ministry being done. But he would say, Tim Keller would say, when he's doing personal evangelism, one of the questions he would ask early on, or two questions, do you want there to be a God? And, and if, Jesus, if these, these are the claims of Jesus, do you want that to be true? And he said, it's crazy, the vast majority of the time, whatever the answer to that question was, is how, is how the evangelistic interaction would go. They don't want there to be a God, 
they, they tended to not believe. If they're saying, yeah, I, I would like this to be true, they tended to go on and believe. And I began to th- process that through my own personal ministry, especially in my years with Campus Crusade for Christ. And it made me think of, of a guy I met back in 2003 at the University of Pisa, still a friend of mine. He was and still is a very committed atheist. The University of Pisa is, is the number one university in Italy. It's uh, the, the who's who of Italian leaders and thinkers and scholars all the way back to Galileo came from, from this, uh, this university. They've been pumping people out since the 1300s. This is basically the Florida State of Europe is what we're dealing with. And I was sitting with my friend, Ale, and he, he said, I'm not gonna believe in God unless this cup, we had like cappuccinos, unless this cup starts to float. I remember my first instinct was, well, I guess God could do that. Maybe I should pray for it to float. But then I had this pause and I said, do you think if that cup started to float right now, even then, do you think you'd believe? And he said, mm, probably not. And that, that there, there, there is this pre, like our hearts are the problem. Evidence is not the problem. Our, our hearts are a fundamental problem. To some, it doesn't matter because I would say the evidence is everywhere. <laughs> but to some, it just doesn't matter that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most historically reliable events in human history. To, to some, it doesn't matter that the 12 people who knew Jesus best, who walked with him every day, 12 of them gave their lives for Jesus. Now, some people say, well, John didn't die, but John was boiled alive. And when he didn't die, he freaked everybody out. So he was banished to an island. These 12 men who saw Jesus every day, they gave their lives for Jesus. And people tend to not give their lives for a lie, but that doesn't matter. They, don't, they put that evidence aside. For some, it doesn't matter that the New Testament is one of the like, most historically accurate, is the most historically accurate document of antiquity. And I was thinking this, and my wife actually pointed this out. She was making the comparison to Socrates. So how many people do you hear really debating if, if Socrates is reliable? What we hear from Socrates can be trusted. You know, we don't have any of his writings. The only things we have of Socrates are second and third hand since well before the time of Jesus, like 400 years before Jesus. But never mind all that, never mind. And never mind the fact that Paul says all of creation at some level proves the glory of God. I mean, everything screams the glory of God in some way. That doesn't matter. If we don't want to believe, we won't believe. If we don't want to see the evidence, we will not see it. It makes you think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the, so you have Lazarus and the rich man, they both die. And Lazarus goes to be with Abraham at a good place. And the rich man goes to a bad place called Hades. And the rich man says to Abraham, would you send Lazarus back to life? I need him to warn my brothers and my family about this place. I want them to avoid the torment that I'm experiencing here. And then according to Jesus in Luke chapter 16, Abraham responded by saying, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear from them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If we don't want to believe someone coming back from the dead is not going to convince us. So the Pharisees chose not to believe. They asked for a sign. Jesus saw through this non-question and Jesus responds very harshly by saying, an evil and adulterous generation seek a sign. 
So this, that word adulterous generation, that would have triggered them in some significant ways because in the Old Testament context, which is exactly how Jesus is using it here, adultery is how God described the spiritual relationship he had with Israel. They were spiritually unfaithful. And so to give you one example, one uh, clear example from from Jeremiah chapter three, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. So Israel, if you know your Old Testament history, was exiled because of this faithlessness. And so now the Pharisees largely feel they have one job to do. Make sure that doesn't happen again. <laughs> like we can't go back into exile. We need to be good in our, in our relationship with God. So the way that they did it is they created a lot of all these little laws to make them feel like they're accomplishing the big laws. Making the, making the main laws feel uh, manageable. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, you're failing. You're, you're worse than the worst in your heritage. Because what they were doing when they created these laws, take one example, Sabbath. So they would create all these little laws, that's how many feet you can walk, but here are these workarounds and you can do this, you know, if you're, you can't move coats, but if you wear the coat, as you, you know, four coats as you walk across the house, then, then that's not work. So what's work, what's not? And it even continues today. Clark Bartholomew told me something I didn't know. In Manhattan, uh, the modern day practicing Jews have fishing line all around Manhattan. I didn't believe you and I Googled it. It is true. All around Manhattan to make a house. So you can go around all of Manhattan and technically never leave the house on the Sabbath. And so Jesus here is helping them and us to see that what you're doing, you're not obeying the law. You're creating a new system where you earn God, earn your righteousness before God. You're not leaning into his mercy and his love. So they thought that they were fixing all these evil ways of their ancestors. And Jesus is saying, no, you're every bit as bad, if not worse. So that is the sign they asked for. Here's the sign they received. Jesus tells them, no sign will be given, but the sign of Jonah. So what is the sign of Jonah? Jonah, of course, yeah, you don't even have to go to church a lot to have heard the story of Jonah. Jonah was an Israelite prophet called by God to preach repentance to the Ninevites. And Jonah did not want to do that. The Ninevites were horrible, uh, dangerous pagans with practices that even the worst parts of our society today would, would look down on. And Jonah didn't want to go there, not because he was afraid of the Ninevites, but because he didn't want them to get grace. They were so bad, he wanted to not like them. He did not want them to get the grace and forgiveness of God. So he got on a boat and he went the opposite direction, like the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. And in the middle of the sea, God had a storm come upon this boat. This is the really short version. And they were all scared for their lives. And when everybody on the boat found out, oh, this is why the storm is here, they got Jonah and they threw him out of the boat. And immediately the storm stopped. And a big fish came and swallowed Jonah. And three days later, threw him up on the shore of Nineveh. So how is Jonah then a sign that Jesus really is the Messiah? 
Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in the same way, that Jonah was swallowed up for three days in the belly of a fish, Jesus was swallowed up by the ground for three days in his death. In the same way that Jonah was miraculously delivered from that fish, Jesus is miraculously resurrected from that tomb. And in the same way that Jonah's delivery, his unique miraculous delivery was a sign to the Ninevites that he is special, that he is sent from God. In the same way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a sign to all of humanity that he is who he says he is. He is the come Messiah coming to save his people. That's the way that it's the sign. The resurrection is the biggest part of our faith. It's the most crucial piece. You, you take the resurrection out and we have nothing. You know, you see all these, there are churches out there that deny the resurrection. I'm just like, what? just go join the YMCA. Like you take away the resurrection. I, I like the YMCA. I'm, so, and I, I'm just like, well, I like the it just can't, I didn't have that written down. Sorry, Dan. Join something that's not the church because the resurrection is why we're here. And I have friends who I've interacted with and they'll say, oh, I believe the resurrection, but what's really hard for me are these other stories you're talking about, Jim, the sun standing still or um, what the virgin birth or the parting of the Red Sea. I'm okay with the resurrection. Those are the really hard ones for me. And my response is like, this is so much bigger. Like this is the harder one to believe. Like this, this stuff's nothing if you believe that a man can truly come back from the dead three days later. This is the sign of all signs if we have eyes to see it. And it's really tempting to look at the story and just look down on those stupid Pharisees. You know, I, I, I've even caught myself as I'm working on this this week, think, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. But you know what? The Bible says that all of us are like the Pharisees. If we, if we don't see Jesus, if we do see Jesus for who he is, it's of God's grace. It's not because we're more moral or spiritual or righteous or anything like that. It's because God has graciously allowed us to see something that we in and of ourselves would never see. And so this, people tend to think this is like a niche doctrine. This is Orthodox Christianity. No part of Orthodox Christianity has ever disagreed with the statement I'm about to make. Sin has so ravaged our bodies that we don't even have the ability to see Jesus as the answer, unless the Holy Spirit overcomes that inability. That's not, not, not disagreed upon at all anywhere in the historic church. Now, what exactly the, historic, the, the Holy Spirit does, that's hotly debated. But the truth that I want us to see here is that no one turns to Jesus without the Holy Spirit first moving in us. Here is Paul in Romans quoting Isaiah. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he goes on to, to show us all the different parts of our body that are affected by sin. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So sin has so ravaged every faculty of our being, including our minds and our hearts, that we do not have the ability to look at Jesus and say, that's my answer. 
And if that's true, church, we should be the most gracious and humble people, never to be tempted to be prideful in our standing with God because it is not of our doing, it's of his. And when he does that, that work that we call regeneration in our hearts, then the evidence is just clear. So how did I, how did I not see that before? And this is why we see, I once was blind, now I see. It's all, I see it all so clearly. And I see the sign of all signs. I see the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in it, I see my future. Because Paul points to the resurrection of Jesus and calls him the first fruits. So you, you've probably heard me say, if you've been here for some time, the first fruits in agricultural turn, in the agricultural world, is the, the first fruits that come about in a, in a big crop, that's an indicator of what everything else is gonna be like. If it's good, you know, sweet and abundant, whatever, then the rest of that fruit is gonna be the same. If it's not, the rest is not. And so Jesus' resurrection, when we have eyes to see it, is the first fruits of our resurrection one day for those of us who believe in Jesus. Death has no more hold on us, and that's why Paul to the, to the Thessalonians says when we die now, we mourn, but not as those who have no hope because we have the sure hope of our resurrection because of the mega sign of Jesus's resurrection from the dead. That is the sign that they received, pointing to his resurrection. But again, for some people, if you don't have eyes to see it, not even a man coming back from the dead is going to convince you. So then we follow this logical path and we get to see the sign that they rejected. So Jesus contrasts these Pharisees with two Old Testament people. The first people are the Ninevites. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So he's saying these Ninevites, these infamous pagans of old, even they responded to the message of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here and you don't even see it. And you know what? Because of that, at the end of time, even the Ninevites will stand forgiven and look at you in your condemnation. You Pharisees are worse than the Ninevites. And then he, he changes gears and contrasts them with the queen of Sheba, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So the queen of Sheba, she was the queen of Arabia, which would be like the ends of the earth to the people at, at that point in time. And Jesus is saying, even she responded to the message of God as it was provided through Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here and you don't see it. And so even the queen of Sheba will stand against you at your condemnation. It's not a fun part of the text, but it's a real part of the text. So we have to look at it. The greatest sin that anyone can ever commit is to not see that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I'm not gonna steal too much of Jonathan's thunder. He's gonna be preaching on this in two weeks. But the only difference between the disciples and the Pharisees is that by God's gracious work through the Spirit, the disciples could see the evidence. And for us, if we see it, it is because God has been very gracious to us. It is not because we're a better detective. And as a result of their unbelief, Jesus is clear, the result is destruction. 
And I can imagine someone thinking, well, that, that feels very unfair, Jim. I mean, you, you just talked about how no one can believe without God working in their heart. And now you're saying that when people don't do the thing that they can't do, the result is destruction. And, and I get that. And Paul actually answers, he asks the same question in Romans 9, the same question, the same context. Is God fair for doing this? And in Romans 9, 14, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so the, the problem, if I had to use someone in the first service pointed out, R.C. Sproul has this great quote, the problem is that we're asking the wrong question and we're getting the wrong answers. Like the right question, it isn't, is, is God fair? Because if God were fair, all of us receive judgment. That's what's fair. We, we, the question is, how can any of us receive grace? No one deserves it. No one merits it. When, and when we ask that question, we're doing something differently. Instead of looking at other people and asking the fair question, we need to turn it back on ourselves. And I get it, because we have friends and loved ones who don't yet know Jesus, and that concerns us. But the hope that we have is that it, our hope is not in them wising up. Our hope is in the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And so then we're not asking, is God fair? We're just marveling that we received any of this grace in the first place. And Paul in Romans 9, right after that, in verse 16, I want to connect this to what the Pharisees are doing. Remember, the Pharisees are creating a system not where they not where they're earning their righteous, they're just their righteousness. They're becoming more self-righteous. They're building a system, a way to earn our righteousness. And Paul says, because it's not through that, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And I know it is hard. It's hard to think about loved ones who don't yet believe. But I wanted to make you one promise. At the end of time, when all of us are standing before the judgment throne of Jesus. I can't imagine what all it will look like and what all we will hear hear say, hear said. The one thing we won't hear from anybody on either side of the judgment is God was not fair. No one will make that claim. Whether they are vessels of God's mercy or vessels of God's wrath, everyone will bow and see that he is fair, just, loving, and merciful. And because of that, we should be some of the most humble, gracious, long-suffering people in this world. We should be some of the nicest on social media. Like this should change our disposition. We're not better than other people. We've just received a lot of grace. Our eyes have been opened by God's grace and we see. I think it's sad that so much of the world looks at Christian, Christianity and they see this, this religion of blind faith. You know, there's no evidence. They just want to believe these myths and believe just to feel better. I was reading one, one pastor this week who was talking about Francis Schaeffer and the illustration that he would give of faith. He said, it's like, it's like coming down a mountain, two hikers coming down a mountain and you're in the dense fog. And the second hiker, the one in the back, puts his foot out, but he can't see if the drop is two inches or if it's a thousand feet. But the hiker ahead of him says, I, I'm, I'm here and the ledge is right here. It's right there, just put your foot down. He says, but I, I can't see it. I, 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 am, is, 
I, I don't know what to do. And the hiker below him is saying, I'm literally standing on the ledge. Like I'm, I'm standing on it. It's here. This isn't a blind faith. There, there's real evidence. And Jesus and his word is that evidence. In addition to that, all of our lived experiences with him. There is evidence for those who have eyes to see it. It's everywhere. So it's not a blind faith. It, it is, it, there, is, there is evidence for those who want Jesus to be true. And for these Pharisees, you know, I, we have to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit. It would have been really hard for them to believe. I mean, just think about it. They would have to admit that their whole life's work was wrong, that, that everything they've d- done was for naught. All the, not only, well, you take one aspect is just how much work they've already put into the system, worthless. They got to admit that. And then they have a whole, a whole society from which they get their authority and power and influence because of their unique ability to have done these things that they made up. So they'd have to give up that too. Take all of their authority influence and hand it over to Jesus. That would have been a very hard thing to do. And the same is true of every one of us when we are first confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ in our life. To believe in Jesus means admitting that everything that you're proud of accomplishing does nothing for you in the sight of God. Nothing. You could lead the best home. You can give away all your money. You can do all the good works of Mother Teresa. And if you're looking to those things to make you right with God, you're not earning your righteousness. You're earning your self-righteousness. That's hard to give up. To believe in Jesus, it means letting go of a lot of things, but letting go of those things for what's better. It means taking the control and the authority in your life and giving it to the only person who deserves it and the only one who really knows what to do with it. And when you do it, seeing that you need a savior isn't easy. Admitting it isn't easy. What that might mean down the road could even be scary if you're giving control of your life to Jesus. But once you do, it's like the weight of the world coming off your shoulders because you're no longer in charge and you believe and you experience the one who is in charge and can control all things. I was, it made me think of this uh, made for television documentary that I watched when I was, you know, like, I think it was like in high school in TBS or something. Um, I realized like under certain age, you don't even know what TBS is anymore. But there was a made for TV documentary about this commercial flight where the pilot, if I remember correctly, had a heart attack. And through some weird circumstances, a businessman with no flying experience is in control of the aircraft. And people on the ground are talking him through how to fly, turn and land this plane. And I was, I was thinking how much anxiety I would have in my heart if, if I were piloting that plane with no experience, not just my life here at stake, everybody else's. And if that is a, if that, it's a metaphor for us being in control of our spiritual lives, imagine that someone came from the back and they said, oh, I'm so sorry. I was in the bathroom for all that, that chaos. I'm a pilot. Like I, I, can, I can do this. You know, the Pharisees then were responding by saying, I don't believe you. I kind of like being in charge. I, I think I, I think I, I think I got this. The guy's like, no, seriously. Like, here's here's my my pilot's license. I can tell you what all these things do. Call down, call down to them. They'll the people on the ground will tell you I am a real pilot and I can save everybody. Pharisees like, nope. I I, I think I'm going to do this. 
On the other hand, the disciples are seeing the true Pilate come in. They're like, yes, please, please. I know that I can't do this. I know you're the only one who can do this. Please take control of this plane. Take control of our life. That is the question in front here. And if you're listening to me, because all of us, we're going to either respond like a Pharisee or a disciple. That's, that all of us are gonna fall into one of those two categories. And if you're here today and you're, you're determined not to believe, then you're not gonna believe. You could probably find more, more reasons not to believe just through my message this morning. But if you're here and you want God to be real and the gospel to be true, just tell that to God. That's the first step. And you'll have all of the evidence that you need. It will just become clear. And I want to finish by, there are three things that this passage says to our doubt, okay? Doubt, first one's to an unbeliever, the the second two aspects are to believers. But this, this passage says a lot to us whenever we're experiencing different kinds of doubt. So to the unbeliever, that doubt probably looks and comes in the form of, is Jesus really who he says he is? I just, I have these doubts, Jim. I don't see all these evidence, evidences that you're talking about. And if, if that's where you are, it's okay to be there. And it's okay to be honest with where you are. And I would point you to Peter. You remember when, when Jesus begins saying some really hard things, most of his disciples leave him. And Jesus looks to Peter and says, Peter, are you gonna leave me too? And Peter looks back and in John 6 we hear his response, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And the way I hear Peter saying that, I actually don't hear him saying, like doubling down, Jesus, we're behind you 100%. I'm, I'm, I'm sold, we are on your side. I think he came to that. I think the author of First and Second Peter was that, but I don't, that's not what I hear in this passage and especially knowing what's gonna happen in, when Jesus is imprisoned. I hear Peter saying, I don't have a better option right now. I I don't know what you're saying is hard and it's scary, but no one else is saying anything that makes sense. And so, no, I don't know, but I'm here because I don't have a better option. I just trust you to show me as we go. That is a real step toward Jesus. I I don't know. I don't know where you're gonna lead me. And and there's some, some hard things for me here, but I don't have a better option. That's the first kind of doubt. The second kind of doubt is a kind of believer who is always worried if they're really saved. Always worried, what if if I die today? What if I don't see God? What if I end up in hell? And to that person, I want you to look at this passage and I want to ask you some questions. Do you want to believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you Do you believe that he is your only hope? Yes. Do you desire to give him your life? Yes. Well, if you can say yes to those questions, that's about as strong as indicator as I could possibly know that you are his. The Pharisees did not have the ability to say yes, and you can willingly say yes to those questions. So this passage, just that you can say yes, should be a comfort in that kind of doubt. And then the last kind of doubt is when all of us have our pharisaical moments because we're all gonna have moments when we, we know what we wanna do, but we know what 
giving Jesus authority of our life means. And so in that moment, we're, we're a Pharisee. We're like, do I want to, in this ethical decision or this crisis, am I going to recognize Jesus for who he is? Or am I just kind of ignore the evidence and go do what I want to do? And this is the Christian life. It does, it's not just one time, the rest of our lives, recognizing, oh, this is a pharisaical moment. Okay, Jesus, I repent, I'm sorry. I want to give you more control of my life. And we do that over and over again, not just annually in January, New Year's, every single day, over and over again. And that is the process of being conformed into the image of God. That is the process of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the process of being made more fully human and being truly joyful in whatever circumstances that God has you in. So in the story, we see a real answer to our doubt. And we see a savior who has opened a door that we could never open, a door that we could in fact never see, but he lets us see it. And then he walks us through that door into his kingdom. And he will never, ever let go of us. Let's pray. God, all of us in this room have doubts that we, that we bring to you, whether the, the doubts of unbelief or the doubts in our belief and you meet us in those places. And so I pray today that every person in this room would be a disciple. Even if it's just saying, I, I, I don't know, I just don't have any place better to go. That's okay, that's a beginning. And I pray that you would give us desires that we could never create on our own to run from our old, cre or our old creation and to be conformed into this new creation. God, we thank you for the message here. We thank you for the examples here, and we thank you for your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.